You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. to welcome Elaine Cooper back to Baltimore to the Pratt Library, although this is this is sort of the extension of the Pratt Library while the Central Library is being renovated. So anyway, I asked Elaine's colleague, Scott Shane, Scott. Oh, one more one thing. Um, I have some left some flyers on the table over here uh, a week from tonight. Roxanne Gay will be here in Baltimore and we were going to have it here in this room, and um, we decided it wasn't going to be big enough, so we moved it to Church of Redeemer up on Wall Street. So that if you're interested in flying, the flyers are over on the table. All right, Scott, you're on. <laughs> Thanks, Judy. Thanks, everyone, for making your way through the concrete snow to be here. Um, your Hadouyah. <laughs> That's Liberian English for greetings, supposedly. What? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I uh, I like to think of myself as sort of Baltimore's ambassador from the New York Times, uh, and uh, uh, so. Anyway, it's, but it's it's great to be here to introduce uh, my friend and fellow employee of what I guess is now officially known as the Failing New York Times. Um, those of you who read her uh, wonderful memoir, The House of Sugar Beach, know what a great storyteller she is. And uh, now she's returning to her native land uh, to tell a different story one that's wrapped up in the larger stories of Africa, of America, of women in power, and even a little bit of men in power. Uh, I'm only 50 pages into it, but I get the feeling that men don't come out all that well from this book. Um, I may need to talk to her about that. Uh, um, That's sort of how it's trending. Uh, Helene came to this country from Liberia at 14. Am I right about that? 13 or 14? I like to say 13. I only just okay. turned 14. Okay. She'd only just turned 14. After uh, her family's terrifying ordeal and escape from her uh, that she describes in House Sugar Beach, that experience gave her a fellow feeling with refugees fleeing danger. And she wrote about that in January for the Times in the midst of the furor over Trump's first uh, immigration order. She became a journalist at the Providence Journal, later at the Wall Street Journal, then an editorial writer at the Times, New York Times, and finally, I think it seemed like a decade ago, right? Became a a news reporter in the Washington Bureau. Uh, She sat next to me. I remember, um, like in the first day or two that she was sitting there, she started talking in some uh, incomprehensible language 
on the phone to her mother, and I asked her, what language is that? She said, English, Liberian English. <laughs> uh, uh, and also, the, uh, mentioning the Providence Journal reminds me of, of, of a story that sort of sums up um, Helene and our relationship. She, um, I told her I was turning 60, and she told me that when she was at the Providence Journal, there was a rule when you're writing obituaries, uh, if the deceased was 60 or older, you didn't have to give a cause of death. It was considered obvious. Uh, anyway, she, she did a spectacular job of covering the Bush State Department, then the Obama White House, and now she's covering the Pentagon. Um, I guess we call it the Trump Pentagon, or will soon. Uh, she won a Pulitzer for her harrowing stories in 2015 on the Ebola epidemic in, in West Africa. In December, she published a remarkable, very unusual story from Cameroon after returning to the village where uh, UN Ambassador Samantha Powers' motorcade had accidentally run over and killed a boy. Um, and in that story, I think she captured the chasm separating the American superpower from much of the world and our clumsiness even when we try to do good in the world. On top of all that, she's a great cook, not just Liberian, but Italian too. And one of the most fun people in the Bureau. Welcome to Baltimore, hon. It's great to be here. Thank you, Judy, for having me uh, here again. Um, thank you, Scott. Uh, Scott this has been practicing his Liberian English because this morning he sent me a perfect um, Liberian two sentences in an email that I knew, hey, Joe. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I knew immediately meant that uh, he hadn't come up with it himself. Um, but I appreciate your kind words. <laughs> um, and thank all of you for coming out here tonight. Uh, so for me, this book began 12 years ago uh, when I was on a reporting trip in Eastern Congo. I didn't know it at the time. We never realized in the moment that something seminal was happening. At least I don't. I'd been on assignment for the New York Times in Congo as part of a series of stories I was working on about development in Africa. And I went to Accra, to Kisumi, Kisumu, Kenya, to Kuraro, Ethiopia. And I remember that with each place, I kept thinking that despite the poverty and the challenges, none of them seemed as bad off as my own home country of Liberia, which had just come out of two decades of civil war. Until that is, I got to Bukavu. Oh, finally, now I'm home, I thought, as I crawled out of the small plane. After the semi-desert of Ethiopia and the savannas of Kenya, Bukavu was otherworldly just like my home country of Liberia. My cousin just walked in late. Leafy green, um, leafy green mountains, rich banana trees, the same luxuriant, verdant landscape that we have in Liberia and the same sense of abandonment that came from having a population ravaged by years of pointless civil war. 
Hundreds of boys patrolled the streets with nowhere to go. Downtown buildings were marked with holes for rockets and grenades. The only cars were the white UN SUVs. What struck me most, though, in Bukavu were the women. As I drove into the city, I passed women I had known all of my life. They were old women with white, with huge bundles, bundles of bamboo sticks on their backs. There were market women in their colorful dresses, huddled at the side of the road, selling oranges, eggs, nuts. There were young girls sitting in front of huts, bathing their little brothers and sisters in rubber buckets. No electricity was anywhere around, but one ten-year-old girl had dragged a bucket of dirty creek water up the hill to her house so she could wash her four-year-old sisters. These were the women that I had grown up with in Liberia, the women all across Africa. The worst place there is to be a woman who somehow managed to carry the entire continent on their backs. I remember one woman in particular who stood out to me in Bukavu. It was twilight when I passed her, and she was trudging up the hill with all these logs on her shoulders. Her husband was walking just in front of her. He carried nothing, nothing on his back, nothing in his hands, nothing. He kept turning around and telling her to hurry up. That image has stayed with me for 12 years. A few months after my trip to Bukavu, I was back in the United States when the women of Liberia, my home country, staged an incredible power play. Defying centuries of history in the most patriarchal of places, they flooded to the polls and staged a democratic coup. They upended years of male rule and voted for Ellen Johnson Sirleaf to be president of Liberia, the first woman to be democratically elected president in all of Africa. I knew instantly that I wanted to write about this. This book looks at the what, the what led to this, and the how. It's a book about Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and what it took to upend all those years of male rule in Liberia. But it's also a book about what drove the women who put her into power. And it is a book that looks at how they did it, how these women got so fed up with being exploited, and raped, and assaulted, that they decided that the only way forward was to turn the tables on the men any way that they could. They used means both fair and foul. In 1985, a young Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was thrown into jail by Samuel Doe, then the president of Liberia. She was put in a cell next to men condemned to die. She listened in that cell as the men next door to her were executed by firing squad. Afterwards, Ellen sat in the corner of the fetid cell, her eyes squeezed shut, her lips moving silently as she prayed, wondering if the soldiers would rape her before they killed her. Hours passed. Outside, the soldiers drank and became even rowdier. Then, just past midnight, one soldier walked up to her cell, stood at the bars, and stared at her. Several minutes passed in silence. Then he said, I'm going to fuck you. He opened the cell door, and Ellen rose to her feet, heart pounding. But just as the soldier was entering her cell, a voice behind him said, as you were, and the soldier dropped his hands. Retreat, said the voice. The soldier closed the cell door, locked it, and moved away. Ellen's savior stepped into the light. He was slightly older than the others, in his mid-twenties, with beautiful dark skin and a serious face. Looking at him, Ellen wanted to cry. They say Ebola? He asked her. Mapa Gola, she replied. Say something in Gola. He said, Way a part time. Jelly drop, 
she said. Her rescuer stared at her for what felt like forever. Finally, he said, Okay, I will stay here tonight. Nobody will come on you. So on that night, Ellen Johnson's relief was not great, but someone else was. A young Gio girl, who also had been captured and brought to Shefflin, was gang raped by soldiers there in the early hours of the morning, as Ellen said in her cell. Whether Ellen's would-be rapists took part as well, she would never know. After brutalizing the girl, the soldiers brought her, naked and crying hysterically, to Ellen's cell and pushed her in. She looked to be around 19. She was bleeding and her eyes were wild with fear. Jumping up, Ellen put her arms around her and lowered her onto the floor. In the corner, the two rocked back and forth, clutching each other. Slowly, the girl's cry softened. Her naked body started to tremble. Leaving her new cellmate for a moment, Ellen went to the bars. There were a few soldiers milling around, alongside the one who had rescued her. Amen. You're thinking about your morning, Ellen said, her voice shaking. The soldiers looked at her. She tried again. Think about your sister's then. Still nothing. I beg you, at least please bring Lapa or something for the child to wear. Finally, one of the men left and brought back a piece of cloth, and Ellen helped the girl cover herself. For the rest of the night, the two women huddled side by side. They did not sleep just sat and rocked back and forth as the minutes ticked away until dawn when the soldiers came for Ellen. As she walked into the jeep, Ellen looked back at her young Gio cellmate. The two women had spent a few hours together. One was now going to face the man she was certain would become her executioner. The other was staying with the men who was certain to rape her again. The jeep pulled away and Ellen turned in the seat to stare at the young girl. She would never see the young woman again. But in many ways, that young Gyo girl would change the course of history in West Africa. That Gyo girl would become a stick of fuel for the fire in the women's movement in Liberia. Little girls do not come out of the womb vowing to become activists of female power. They don't spend their childhood thinking about how they will be paired with indignities, large and small, that bleed women daily. It's a series of things that multiply and turn ordinary women into movements of female determination. You're living your life sleeping floors at Renamom Drugstore in Madison, Wisconsin, when your husband storms in to yell at you in front of your white boss lady. You're stunned by the violent shock of a hand slapping your face, delivered by the man who promised to love, honor, and cherish you till death do you part. You feel the warm, wet skin of a brutalized, naked, hysterical young woman as she crouches in the corner, bleeding, after being savaged by the men who swore an oath to protect Liberia and her people. I wanted to be a school teacher like my mother, Ellen said, looking back 30 years later. Describing that night at the Shefflin Barracks, she used the mental sleight of hand that is common among survivors of unimaginable horror. She would relay the events of that night with no emotion whatsoever. The joy ride on the beach, which the soldier, when the soldier told her would be her execution site, the useless pleas from the condemned men that she find a way for them to be spared, the overwhelming terror of men who know that they're about to die, the overwhelming terror of knowing that you're about to be raped, the gut-clutching anger of holding a young woman after she has been raped by soldier after soldier after soldier after soldier.
that's what I wanted to do when I was young, Ellen said, to teach. The young Ellen may have started off wanting to teach, but this was not a woman who was destined for the granny room. Hers would be a different destiny, one launched in a jeep by the young Gil girl who had been the cellmate. President Doe didn't realize it, but in locking Ellen Johnson up in jail, he created both an international cause to lead and ignited the women's movement in Liberia. All across Liberia, young women were riveted to the story of this jailed female political dissident who was standing up to the men running the country. Eventually, after a year and under pressure from women's groups and the international community, Doe released Ellen, but he had created a monster. The stage was now set for the revolution that would overturn gender politics in West Africa. But the men still had one more act to play, and it was a doozy. I could stand up here for hours going on about what Charles Taylor did to Liberia, but that should be the subject of his own book. The tribal war he started, the child soldiers, the hundreds of thousands of people killed, the wars he launched in Sierra Leone and the Ivory Coast, he kidnapped children from their terrified mothers. His forces went on a raping and killing spree that spared almost no one. Once again, as they had so many times before, it was the Liberian women that carried the country through. While the men were waging war, the women in Liberia all became market women, traveling by foot to the border to get food to bring back to the starving population. They had the babies of their rapists in the forest, strapped those babies on their backs, and went back into the market stalls, or sat on the side of the road, selling oranges. And they bided their time. When the war finally ended, they made their power play. In 2005, 12 years before Pansy Nation became a secret Facebook group, and I'm with her buttons and bumper stickers crowded on locales and SUVs here in America, the women of Liberia held a master class on how to get a female elected president. They had the perfect vehicle for their guerrilla campaign, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, a woman who was supremely qualified, who by far outqualified the men who were running, but also had no qualms whatsoever about playing dirty politics and fighting any dirt that the men could fling with smellier dirt. <laughs> the election came down to a choice between the 67-year-old Harvard-educated global bureaucrat and the professional football player, George Leon. Now, George Riel was a world-renowned football player, a star in Europe when he was a striker for the Italian team AC Milan. In 1995, Riel won the Ballon d'Or, was named Pfeiffer World Player of the Year, and the African Player of the Century. Two goals in particular stood out. One was against Bayern in 1994, when he embarrassed not one or two, but three Bayern defenders with his quick pivots before letting rip a gorgeous sally into the near post. The other goal, known around the world as the goal, was in 1996, when Ria destroyed the Verona midfield as he single-handedly slalomed his way down the pitch, twisting, turning, bucking, and weaving all the way to the Verona goal in a legendary performance that Liberians, who watched it using their makeshift Tiger batteries because there was no electricity, still talked about a decade later. That Leah had no college education didn't bother his youthful supporters, who counted that the Verona Bowl showed its own education. <laughs> At the other end of the spectrum was Ellen Johnson's relief. 
finance minister under former President Talbert, dissident under former President Joe, United Nations, World Bank, IMF pedigree, ally turned foe of Taylor. She had morphed from an abused wife, cowering and hunched in the front seat of her husband's car while he slapped her, to an international bureaucrat and iconic political dissident who was attempting to do something no woman had ever done before, win by popular vote the right to lead an African country. The men all fell in line behind George Weah and then complained that the women supporting Ellen were sexist. It was a remarkable display. Given the choice between a football player with no credible college education, but two fantastic goals against Bayern and Verona, and a Harvard-educated development expert, the top male presidential candidates who fell short in the runoff, with one exception, endorsed the football player. And just as the men fell behind Wimpia, the women fell in behind Ellen. Once the time for campaigning for the runoff came, allegiances peeled away, and even the women who were staunch members of parties that opposed Ellen's unity party abandoned the men and took up the now familiar mantra, vote for woman. Door to door, the market women passed out t-shirts and handed out flyers. They slept on the side of the road at night, curled up on their mats. They walked from village to village, exhorting women to vote for woman. We as supporters responded by predicting that if he lost, the country would go back to war. No we are, no peace, they chanted. Except thus the runoff started resembling past elections, like the one in 1985, in which Doe's supporters had suggested the same thing, vote for Doe or the country goes back to war. Except that in November 2005, the men appeared to have met their match, because the women had their own tricks, tricks that would make weird threats look like boys' play. You want beer? Just give me a Voda ID card. I will get beer. I said, we buy Voda ID cards with 10 Liberty dollars for one. Who looking for money? Just bring your Voda ID card. The group of women had stationed themselves at, the, at a bar near the ELWA Junction, a major intersection in Monrovia along the road to Robertsfield. The women set to work luring the young men in a time-honored fashion, except this time it wasn't sex on the table. And this time, the women were the ones with the cash, and the young men were the ones with the commodity for sale. Some of the boys were finished stupid, one market woman would call with a smirk. She was happy to go into detail about what she called the women's crafty techniques. We were crafty, oh, she said, one silver tooth glinting in the sunshine as she laughed. Many of the young men thought they were done with voting after the first round and didn't realize that they would need their ID cards again if their man was ever to actually assume the presidency. Others knew and didn't care. Late in the evening of a muddy, muggy hot day, the lure of a crisp, cold, and multi-club beer far outshone whatever benefits they thought their voter ID cards would bring them. As for the ones who were too smart to sell their voter card, well, their mother simply stole them. Some of the women, when the children had hot hair, said they still voting for George Weah. They stole their children at voting castle, said Parley Harris, looking sheepish and defiant at the same time. One market woman, who agreed to be referred to as the Oma, said she snuck into her son's room while he was sleeping, slipped his voter ID card out of his wallet, and buried it in the yard. <laughs> Years later, there was no shame among the women who stole their son's ID cards. Yeah, I took it, and so on, Oma said, 
<laughs> that foolish boy, what he know? I carried him for nine months. I took care of him. I fed him when he was hungry. Then you would take him to country and give it away. You would get everything here to child to carry. Madam's women also managed to unearth um, a 14-year-old commercial of George We Are Naked. <laughs> In the commercial, Wea, at the time a world-famous striker with AC Milan, walks into a restaurant to greet his white dinner date after dousing himself with cologne. He's fully clothed in the beginning, but when the woman sees him from across the room, she's so overcome that she imagines him naked. <laughs> the commercial then cuts to a naked Wea strolling across the restaurant to his date as other white women in the restaurant drool and fan themselves. Finally, Wea arrives at the table, leans over it towards his date, and smiles. When he sits down, he is clothed again, and he says suavely, Tutu bene. <laughs> now, this commercial was being played in Italy when Wea was playing for AC Milan. To get an idea of how this commercial played in Liberia, <laughs> you have to understand this country's Bible-spouting puritanism and deep racial anxieties. Many of the freed American slaves who founded Liberia were the mixed-race children of white slave owners who proceeded to set up the same kind of society from which they had fled, except this time the lighter-skinned colonists were the upper class, lording it over everybody else. So matters of race still struck deep into the heart of the average Liberian. That's why for many Liberians, it was bad enough that Wheel was strutting around naked on Italian TV. But in front of white women, that was too much. Wea walks butt naked, <coughs> screamed the headline in the New Democrat newspaper, which provided this hilarious synopsis of the commercial for those without access to YouTube. The video scene portrays white women in looks of sexual awe and ecstasy, glancing at a black man with his athletic build and muscular features, exposing his genitals, flipping, walking before them. <laughs> Wea's political supporters tried to brazen their way out. Mr. Wea committed no crime by posing butt naked. One party official helpfully told <laughs> Only constitutional deviants should not be elected. But the body politic quickly dusted off their holier-than-thou cloaks, adopting the convoluted sentence structure at which Liberian men were particularly adept. Joshua Duncan Freedom, principal of the King Pentecostal High School, told reporters, if the Congress for Democratic Change through its vocal spokesperson at Carrier's grade can justify George Weir's butt-naked video on the international information superhighway on some constitutional right, then Liberians must be prepared, God forbid, under a CDC rule to give audience to the legality and normalness of murder and even cannibalism. <laughs> the truth is that this cloak of religi religious indignation simply covered up what Liberians of both sexes were really mad about. That Rio was, Rio was flashing his oil, well-chiseled body, buttocks included, in front of white women. Liberian women saw it as a rejection of black women. Liberian men were jealous. Either way, this was a loser issue for Wea, as Ellen and her women knew it would be. <laughs> On Tuesday, November 8th, the people of Liberia woke up and went to the polls for the second time in four weeks. 
There was a real and palpable sense in the air that something big was happening. Helpful poll workers at a polling station in Singport were allowing pregnant women and nursing mothers to cut to the front of the line. So Bernice Freeman, Louise Yasse, and a handful of other women were passing around babies and toddlers. <laughs> you won't worry, baby? <laughs> Bernice was grinning at one woman, sneaking a furtive look over her shoulder. Put a baby on your back. To another woman, she advised, I'm pregnant. If they think you're pregnant, you can vote in front. <laughs> it was unclear whether the poll workers noticed how many different women were carrying the same baby. <laughs> the old lady was in the lead. On Wednesday morning, Ellen woke up and walked into her living room to find it already full of campaign aides, excited about the preliminary returns from Lofa. Lofa and Nimba counties. She wasn't just in the lead. She was in the lead by a lot, 60% to 40%. It was a lead that she never relinquished during the days of counting that followed. The old lady would be Madam President. Out of 25 years of carnage that was Liberia's descent into hell, had emerged a new leader, and that person was a 67-year-old grandma. <laughs> Heading back to her house from her campaign headquarters on November 23rd, Ellen was juggling congratulatory phone calls from officials all over the world. In the backseat of her SUV, her American friend Steve Cashin turned to her, grinning. The White House just called. Bush wants to talk to you, he said, then recited a very secure, encrypted phone number. Call that number. A minute later, Ellen was on the phone with the American president, accepting his congratulations and best wishes. Then the phone went dead. Liberia in 2005 had no landlines thanks to the war, so everyone used cell phones. They paid for the service from Lone Star Cell by purchasing scratch cards from grown-up boys on the side of the road. The president-elect of Liberia had just run out of credit on her scratch card. <laughs> Turning to Cashin, Ellen smirked. That isn't very presidential at all, is it? She said. When word spread about Ellen's victories, the markets of Monrovia emptied as the women who minded the stall at Rally Time and Nancy Dole and Red Light and Painesville ran jubilant into the streets. Go to school! Go to school! Some of them yelled. Don't play football. <laughs> I still think about that woman I saw in Bukavu in the Congo all those years ago, the one walking behind her husband with all the laws on her back. And in so many ways, I guess this book is for her. I'm happy to take any of your questions. And thanks again. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us something about um, getting her to talk, um, especially about, you know, I mean, she's still an active politician, uh, and there's stuff in her past that um, is pretty sensitive. So um, I, I just wonder how you, how you got her to open up. Um, it took four years, and she still, even when I was home for Christmas in December, and I saw her, she told me something. And by then the book is completely done and gone to press and I was like, seriously, now you're telling me this? Um, she started out, very, she's very reserved anyway. Um, she doesn't like to touch people, she doesn't, you see her and she's very, you know, she'll shake your hand, you almost like Marians want to hug and kiss and all of that, she doesn't want any of that. Um, 
Uh, and when we first started, when we first started this four years ago and I started interviewing her, I was very, probably very reserved myself and I would interview her in American English uh, and I wasn't getting very far with that because she can go back and forth between American and Liberian the same way I can, but when she was talking to me in like American English, there was a wall that would go up for some reason. And it took me months to figure that out. And once I switched to Liberian, uh, it was much easier and much more relaxed and much more natural. Um, you know, she was an abused wife and she doesn't like talking about it, which is, I think, a big, I mean, I, I, I think that's a, I would, use, I would criticize her for that because, you know, she could stand as an example to so many women who are abused in Liberia if she talked more about it, but she doesn't like to talk about it. And so getting her to talk about how her husband beat her was like pulling teeth. It was very, very hard. She kept saying, I don't want, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to hurt my sons. I don't want them to think I'm them to think that I'm talking bad about their father. And the sons are 50 and 60 years old. I mean, <laughs> the dad is, I mean, it's the, the idea that you're protecting your little kids is not it's <coughs> not what I would say. So it took a long time. And even when the galley, you know, she I, she didn't see the book obviously when I was working on it, and when I finally sent, I finally sent her a galley. Um, uh, her biggest complaint was that there was too much in there, and I don't even think there's that much in there about you know about the domestic violence. Is her ex-husband still living? No, he died in. Um, 1990, Pretty common all over the world. I don't think it's, sure. it's certainly not, you know, isolated to just no. uh, Africa. Obviously. But I mean, I thought when, I, when you were talking about, it, I thought what an empowering book for women and and men. But I think also I was thinking about all the women I know in my life who have had uh, suffered um, abuse at the hands of women. And I thought how interesting you're talking about Africa, and but it's international, obviously. That's why, again, though, I think that's where I think she could do more. You know, if she went out and actually talked about this, you know, and used the well, you sort of her own, yeah, but she, she, you know, I am. Yes? Um, what about her defeat by, uh, by Taylor in that first go around? What, what was the feeling among women of Liberia that, that go around? Uh, Charles Taylor, that was a really strange election. And Charles Taylor beat her fair and square. She had been out of the country for, for a long time. She was viewed as too Western, too American, too this and too that. And she hadn't really galvanized. She hadn't really caught on to the whole idea of a women's movement at the time. And you had Charles Taylor, who um, came into Liberia. He invaded in 1989, 1990. He got very close to... Uh, Monrovia, just as he got on the outskirts of the Monrovia, international peacekeepers came in and stopped him. And that, in many ways, prolonged the war for years. So then he's ruling Greater Liberia, and you know the international peacekeepers are in Monrovia, and there's this two, all of this bifurcated country. Uh, so during the 1997 election, sort of the motto, well, that's when he got that insane motto, he killed my mom, he killed my pop, but I'll vote for him 
anyway. I mean, Liberia had been a completely lawless place for for seven for seven years, and there was a feeling among a lot of people, particularly the men, that he had broken the country, so let him fix it. It was this weird, you know, and you didn't get, but then he got a chance to rule and he completely ran and continued to run the country into the ground, which is what led to the 2003 women's movement and then the 2005 election. Yes? Um, you, you've done this marvelous job of, of detailing how women's movement was born around Serbia. Did she make efforts during her presidency to nurture that? And do you think it's cohesive enough to carry on after she Yes and no. Um, she nurtures it somewhat. There's still, you know, she's done a lot in her presidency to promote women. She's appointed them to high levels of office. A lot of them have turned out to be corrupt, as corrupt as all the men who've been running Liberia for decades. Um, she's definitely encouraged women to uh, to report sexual violence. Great people actually report and prosecute rape cases now. Uh, but at the same time, she's very much a politician. So she's aware that she can't completely alienate the men. I mean, she brought Taylor people into her government. She's tried to reach out to the opposition. And it's a really, really messy business, which I think she recognized from the start that she would have to make all of these political compromises to sort of like push the, the country forward. And it certainly moved forward during her time. But there are a lot of people now who are disappointed that she didn't, you know, it's, it's reminded me so much. I spent 2013, a lot of 2013 in Liberia, uh, working on this book. And there was a lot, it was two years after she'd been reelected. And everybody, it seemed like everybody there was mad at her. And there was a lot. And then I came back to the States. And everybody here was pissed at Obama. It's the exact same, you know, the Democrat, the lefty part of the Democratic Party was all. She didn't go far enough. He didn't do this. He didn't do that. It was all, it was so, it so mirrored what I was hearing in Liberia. I think there's a part of this being, you know, the second term. That, but now that we're getting close to her term coming up, because uh, she's stepping down at the end of the year, and all the same male characters who ran before are all running again, including the football player. Um, you're hearing a lot of people now freaking out about what's going to happen after she leaves because you know there's no there's no denying that the last 12 years under her Liberia has I mean where we've been with the exception of Ebola, but she still managed to eventually, after many misstarts, navigate. Uh, the country has been going this way. And so there's there's a, a lot of anxiety now, similar to how you know the end of towards the end of 2016, I started freaking out about Obama leaving. Yeah, you had a question. Well, it was about the restaurant department, what the things that we're doing in Vietnam. Are there any successors in the There's no female successor that I see to be president. There are a lot of women at the local level in mayor, as mayors of cities, as superintendents of counties who are uh, in uh, uh, running, you know, more, uh, local <coughs> local entities. But I don't see a credible female running for president right now. I mean, I, somebody, somebody, they still have time to formally throw their hat into the ring for this October's election and then the November runoff. The way the Liberian elections are set up is, is you have to have 50% of the first vote uh, to win outright, so it guarantees that in a crowded field, you're not going to get one winner. Uh, so you always, the top two candidates then go to runoff. You referred to um, Liberia as home. Do you still consider it to be your home? Yes. I do. Um, 
it's, yeah, I do. Uh, I stayed away for a long time, uh, and when I went back, it was, I felt very American. Uh, but ever since then, each time I go back, I feel more like Nigerian now. And I think, I certainly in this past year, I feel very, very Liberian. We all know her. Yes. What's the, uh, I mean, to my understanding, you know, the Joe values is sort of this fuel about resentment against America, Liberia, and so what's the status of that, of those conditions? It's, it, it's, Liberia is founded by descendants of, was founded by free American blacks and free slaves uh, who went to uh, West Africa and basically established the same kind of antebellum society that they had fled from in the American South, except now they were the upper class and everybody else was, were the workers and servants and that 150 years of that imbalance is what led to the 1980 coup by Master Sergeant Doe and 28 other members, enlisted members of the Liberian military. And they overthrew the old guard. They executed uh, uh, the president at the time and cabinet, his uh, 13 members of his cabinet on the beach by firing squad, and they took over and declared that Liberia is now under new management. And for the first time in the country, since the country was formed, uh, the native Liberians felt that they were in power, but Doe was as bad as the people that he succeeded. So it didn't take long for people to get to become unhappy again. And that eventually led, and he basically set up his own tribe, the Crown people, as the, as the elite and everybody else. Liberia still had 27 other tribes underneath them. And so that sort of led to the civil war, which then was you had all these different tribes fighting each other. And the initial America Liberian versus everybody else sort of friction that you had in the past kind of not melted away, but it became much more nuanced. Today, there's still a little bit, there's still remnants of that, but it's, a, it's so much less than when I was growing up in Liberia. There's no, there's no, we used to call, they called them, and my, my great, 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 great grandfather was one of the, was on the first ship that went back to Liberia, that found Liberia in 1820, arrived there in 1821, Elijah Johnson, and it's like, there's no, and so they called us the Congo people, and there's no real Congo elite now in Liberia anymore, even though these are mostly the people who are more educated than the rest of the population, so you still get that. But there's much more intermarriage, there's much more, it's like, but it's still, there's still a layer there. Would you ever consider running for office in Liberia? Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. okay, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. I'm um, no. <laughs> people, this is like the third time somebody's asked me, why do people have that book reporter? Why do people have a Scott Shane wearing for office? I guess what? <laughs> I don't know. I think, you know, not, not necessarily. I can't see too many different sides of every, for every issue. Um, uh, no. Okay. Thank you. I think on that note. Um, I got one more. <laughs> So in, in a crisis like Ebola, American aid was, was um, quite significant, is certainly my impression. But do you have an opinion, uh, and now we're in a, we have a new president who is at least trying to or talking about eliminating foreign aid. And, and I mean, you know, 
in his defense, um, there, you know, there's a lot of studies that suggest that foreign aid is not terribly effective. Um, what would you, if you, if you uh, got a chance to talk to any American president, what would you tell them about aid to Libya? Wow. Um, I think here, you know, this is what I mean about reports, because they'll look at, you know, every side of the issue. I think you raised a really good point. I think in a lot, a lot of times that we, in when I say we now, I mean we Liberians become so dependent on foreign aid that we don't do as much for ourselves. I think that's definitely true, and you don't want, you want a country to be able to try to develop its middle class and figure out how to sort of rely on itself. That said, I also think that I totally agree with General Mattis, uh, now I'm going to go to read the Americans, that if we don't spend money on the development programs and looking to lift up uh, um, poor places around the world, then we're going to have to spend more money on guns because that's where conflict rises. It rises is from lack of development and from young boys who have nothing else and they don't have anything to hope for. And so it's very easy at that point for extremist organizations to exploit that. And I think a big part of the defense budget you know, should be looking at, and a lot of people at the Pentagon talk about this and their worries about, you know, when you look at, so the, they call it the youth bulge in, in Africa. And you have so many young men who have nothing, nothing to do. Uh, and that's, they become very easy prey. So I think I would definitely say that to the next president. Thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.